This is Meredith for Real, the Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. Here, we explore taboo questions through nuanced conversations. Sometimes they're questions people think but don't ask out loud. Sometimes they're questions that fly under the radar, veiled by cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity within yourself and the world around you. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Today's episode is for anyone planning their tropical escape in the coming months. The thoughts shared by my guests will not only stir up new thoughts about how you see the world, but they also may make your next trip the best one you've ever had. We cover the difference between cultural experience and what's just simply a vacation, his most culturally surprising moment, which was in Oman, how to save money while increasing quality human connection, and the parochial versus cosmopolitan mindset. And yeah, I totally had to Google what the word parochial meant. Just keeping it real. If you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did with an American polyglot on how he crossed borders of language and colorism in his travels. That is episode 49. All right, friends, keep it curious. Only 19% of Americans have traveled to one country outside the U.S., and it's common that that one country was via a cruise ship or all-inclusive resort. And while the inclination to not leave could be tagged as so American, it's so human to want to stick with what you know. So why do we travel halfway around the world just to visit the McDonald's in Japan or shop at the Walmart in Costa Rica? My next guest is someone who has left his comfort zone so long ago that being uncomfortable has become cozy. And his list of visited countries is so long, where he hasn't been is actually a shorter list. But he didn't start traveling until late in life, proving it's never too late. And today he's going to share his perspective on the difference between visiting a place and experiencing it as we ask the question, is it really culture if it's built for tourists? Exploring wide and traveling deep, photographer, blogger, podcaster, Gary Arndt. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I would love to hear your take on the difference between the benefit between just being curious enough to even just go to a place and being curious enough to connect to the culture of that place. A lot of times people go to a place not because they're even curious about it. They go there because it's warm and it's cheap. And that is pretty <laughs> much is the, the driving things that make people go somewhere. They just want to get away from home. You know, if it's in the middle of winter, they want to go somewhere warm and that's about it. I don't even think most people that travel are even interested in getting to know the people that are there. And I've seen this um, in countless places where there are uh, cruise ships that they've created their own sanctuaries. Uh, One of the cruise companies has a place in Haiti where people can get off the ship and they quote unquote have been to Haiti, but they've not been to Haiti. (laughs) They have they they have really not experienced the country at all. They have experienced this little tiny resort. They may have been on the territory, you know, they may have been on Haitian soil, but they have not experienced the country. Uh, so that's really kind of the big difference between, you know, simply going on a vacation to get away and relax. And there's nothing wrong with that uh, versus actually going somewhere to travel and experience the place that you're visiting. And I don't really know if there's a whole lot. I don't know how, how great the demand is. Uh, for the second one of those. That makes me wonder why though. Like, 
I think you might be this way and we all know I'm this way. <laughs> like, I just want to know about people's lives. I feel like hasn't everyone driven down the street at nighttime when the houses are lit up with the lights inside and the window shades are still open and wondered, oh, I wonder what their life is like. I mean, that's the opportunity that at some level you do get when you go to another country is you get to do more than just peek inside the window. I, I, I don't know. Do you think that you and I are strange or is there an ingredient missing in the wide scope of our culture that's allowing for us to just be okay not being curious enough to really connect? I think there are roughly two types of people. Uh, there are people that have a parochial mindset and people that have a cosmopolitan mindset. And people who are parochial uh, don't really care much beyond uh, the scope is of, of what is around them. They're interested in their immediate friends and family and their area and, and, and things like that. And that's about it. They really are not concerned with the rest of the world. They have no desire to go to a, a restaurant that serves ethnic food. They, they just don't care. You know, and my family's like this. I grew up in a family that never traveled anywhere, was never interested in traveling anywhere. I came back from traveling around the world for years. I'd go to a family gathering. No one would even ask me a question about hmm. the fact that I had been gone visiting all these places. No curiosity whatsoever. And then there are people that are curious. They're interested in, in, in other people. I think it's a smaller number. And even a lot of them are not necessarily going to make the leap to travel somewhere because there's a lot of fear amongst Americans. We only hear about most places when something bad happens. And so we establish negative associations with that place. If something good happens, we don't hear about that. That's not on the news. And so there's this constant fear about going someplace else because, you know, there's not like a news report, nothing happened today. And just do that every single day, that would get boring real quick and nobody would pay attention. And so yeah. I think that fear uh, prevents people from traveling, even though there are billions of people who live in these places every day who are not getting murdered, not getting robbed, not being assaulted, um, that just doesn't dawn on them. And I've had people you know, tell me, it's like, well, aren't you afraid? Aren't you worried? I'm like, no, not particularly. you know, Because when this happens, if something happens near your home, I'm sure everyone listening to this within the last year, there's probably been a murder somewhere, you know, in your city, maybe You're, but no one's packing up their bags and leaving. But if there's a murder that happens in Acapulco or something like that, and that's on the news, then suddenly that is a dangerous place. And the reason is because when we're familiar with a place, we know, okay, we're not going to go to that neighborhood. We're going to stay out of this situation. But when you're traveling somewhere, you don't know what that is. And so you're a sense of, fear and concern is heightened. And that's why a lot of people don't travel. I heard one podcaster describe all of what you just said, the fear, the, I mean, essentially the othering of like, oh, the problems over there, the messaging that people in other countries are lost, that whole countries are dangerous. And then another podcaster described Part of being a good global citizen is asking these hard questions, the questions that force you to explore these beliefs that you have that, you know, why is it that, you know, the shooting that happened across the street didn't cause me to move? But the the one headline, I didn't even read the article, the one headline I read about 
XYZ location. Now I'm not even going to go to that whole country, even though that was only one spot in that location. I, I think it kind of forces us to want to unplug instead of engage. It's like a, it's like a whole ecosystem of stuff that reinforces us to behave in this way. I think it's because the further away you get from yourself, the less you know. And the less you know, you paint with a broader brush. So for example, several years ago, there was a bombing, you remember, at the Boston Marathon. And I remember I messaged some friends who I who had concerned about my traveling. And I said, are you okay? And they said, well, why? I said, well, there was a bombing in America. And they said, we don't, we, we don't live in Boston. We live in the other side of the country. I know, but there was a bombing in America. My point was, that's exactly the kind of thing somebody would say if there was an incident in another country and you happen to be in the country, even if it's a really big country, right? So if something happens in Brazil and you're in Brazil and it's a thousand miles away, people will say, oh, are you all right? Because they just don't know. And in some places like Africa, it's not even they don't know the country, so they lump the whole continent together. There was an Ebola outbreak that happened in Sierra Leone several years ago. People were canceling their trips to South Africa because of what happened in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone is closer to London than it is to Cape Town. And yet people just lumped all of Africa together for that reason. And I just think uh, learning about these places is good, but the best way to really learn about it, to be completely honest, is to travel. So when I sold my home back in 2007, the first place I went to outside of the United States was Tahiti. And that sounds all glamorous and everything, but I was, I, you know, wasn't staying at a fancy resort. I was just staying at this motel and I was terrified to take a local bus because I didn't speak French. So I ended up getting a taxi uh, and, and that worked out just fine. But today you drop me into that same location, put me in the same place. I get on the local bus, no problem. And it's not because I'm fluent in French. It's because I just have the confidence that came from spending so much time on the road. And that's really the only way you can develop it is by actually going out there and doing it. So travel in that response, that sense is kind of like a muscle. You have to exercise it. Was there ever a time for you, maybe in your early, early travels, I know that was a long time ago, so it might be hard to remember all the way back then, that you either remember overcoming some sort of uh, trepidation, residue of trepidation that you may have had from the you know greater messaging that we all hear all the time, or maybe a reinforcement that connecting with different cultures is so worth it. Are there any moments that stick out in your mind of either one of those that really, oh, sure. you know, sold you for the life being a traveler? I was in uh, Oman, which is in the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula next to Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and United Arab Emirates. And I was in there in 2009. And in fact, I remember the exact day because Oman had just won the Gulf Cup in soccer. And so there were there were festivities going on all over the country. And uh, I was in the town of Nizwa, which is about 100 kilometers away from the capital city of Muscat. And uh, the taxis are very cheap. Gas is very cheap. And so there's a place you can go to get a taxi and they'll actually go all the way to Muscat, take you the 100 kilometers. And I was as I was waiting there with my bag... Uh, clearly a foreigner, uh, a guy pulls up and offers to drive me to Muscat. Now, my traveler senses start tingling at this point because some random stranger in a car pulls up and offers to give you a ride. He didn't really speak English. I didn't really speak Arabic, but I accepted his offer and he drove me all the way there, 
He actually bought me something to eat along the way, dropped me off at my hotel. And uh, I got out, I put my bags kind of in the lobby. And when I turned around, I was going to offer him some money, you know, for gas, for, for driving me here, which I thought was a reasonable thing to do. Uh, he had already left and, you know, I never even uh, got a chance to thank him or anything, but uh, that was the kind of hospitality uh, that's very common in the region. And something you, that, that, that kind of story is something that you never hear about. And I have a lot of stories like that of, you know, people I meet who are very curious about who you are and where you're from, because maybe they don't get the opportunity to travel. So what they learn about the world is by people coming to them and, you know, having discussions about their country and everything else. And so I've, I've had so many of those uh, traveling around the world, but that's always the one that kind of stuck out because from the start where I was kind of, you know, trepidatious about getting in his car to the end, uh, it completely changed, you know, my attitude. And I'm not saying get in car with, with strangers as a general practice, uh, but yeah, it was something that really sort of changed my my attitude towards uh, people in the region. That that would be something that would make most people's warning bells go off. And as you said, it's not as general practice a a thing that you should do, but it does illustrate the the point that you're making that not everything that we perceive as dangerous is dangerous. It's just different. Yeah. One thing I should add, I've had a lot of people that say, you know, oh, I want to go to this place and I want to live just like a local. I mean, I always tell them, no, you don't. Because if someone came to your community to live like a local, what would it involve? It would involve getting up and going to work every day. That's what people do. <laughs> getting a job. Yeah. Right. And most people, you can talk to people that were born and raised in New York City and have never gone to the Statue of Liberty. And I find that's true in almost every city around the world, that they're just not interested in the tourist attractions. Maybe they went there as a kid on a school trip. Um, but but they're not interested in the same things that you are if you're going to their city because they live there, right? They're not on vacation. They're not traveling. They're not exploring. They're just living. And so this expectation that you're going to go and, you know, live like someone is going to live locally is, is just not realistic. And moreover, you're not from that culture. And so this notion that you're going to adopt it or just sort of fit in, uh, don't expect that. People behave differently when you have a guest in your home, right? You clean up, you're on your best behavior, you put out the nice china, things like that. That is not a normal experience, but that is more likely what you are to experience when you're visiting a place, just like when you have guests come to your home. My listeners who are presumably a curious bunch, right? So let's presume that we are the second half of the two groups that you posed at the beginning. People who want to connect with more culture than they do sit with their feet up next to a pool sipping Mai Tais. Say someone is starting at ground zero and they do have that and that curiosity that's just, you know, little seed. Do you think that it's better to not travel touristically or it's better to travel touristically than to not travel at all? Yeah, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If you've never been anywhere before and you're comfortable going on a group trip somewhere, then do that. I have, I have no problem with that. I've done group trips in the past, and there are some places where you have to go on a group trip if you want to visit because they don't just allow people to come and visit uh, solo. Uh, there are certain areas that are either hard to reach or they're protected, so you can't just go wandering around. And uh, you know, if you've never been out of the United States, for, for example, go to Canada, go to London. 
go to a place where you're not going to have a problem with the language if you find that to be a, a mental barrier. And you'll still go there and you'll learn things and just how things are kind of different. One of the things I did when I started traveling, like the first two years, I kind of stopped doing it after a while, is I would at least make one trip to a McDonald's in every country I visited that had McDonald's. And the reason I did this, because McDonald's are basically the same everywhere, basically, but not quite the same. And every country has a something a little bit different about it, something different on the menu, the way they serve it, however. And going in, and you can notice those differences against the backdrop of something that is otherwise the same. Um, again, I'm not saying travel and, and go to McDonald's while you're on the road, but you know, even if you just needed free Wi-Fi or a bathroom or something, uh, you can go in and see what those differences are. And I think when you travel, you begin to notice it's, you're not just noticing, oh, they do that different or the same from how we do it back home. And the more you start traveling, you, you start realizing connections between other places you started traveling to. And what you learn then almost becomes exponential because you can then make comparisons to, oh, well, in Japan, the temples are like this. And in Thailand, they're like this. And it's a very different architectural style. And that has nothing to do with your world back home, but it's just as comparing the different places that you visited. Do you think it's possible to really connect with a culture in a setting that is so insular, like an all-inclusive resort or a cruise? If you're going to an all-inclusive resort or you're going on a cruise, that's fine. It is not a cultural experience. They're going to sell you crappy jewelry, crappy art. I've done some cruises. I was invited because of, you know, as a travel journalist, uh, the food was shockingly good. Believe it or not, I felt on the cruises I went to, but they were not the travel experiences that I was used to. Quite frankly, you don't even need to leave the boat for most of them. Uh, when you do leave the boat, you're going to be docking in a place that can support a massive boat because there, there's only so many places that they can pull up to port. And then when you get off the boat, you're going to see senior frogs in every port you go to. You're going to end up seeing the same things everywhere. So if you want to go and have a good time, a place where that has all you can drink alcohol, go for it. But just don't convince yourself that you're having some grand cultural experience. When I'm going places, I always end up talking with really anyone who stands still long enough to talk to me. Um, and like the the taxi driver and, you know, the the person running the place that we're hostel that we're staying at or whatever. And I just always want to know, like, what is their life like? Where were you, you know, where were you born? How long have you worked here? What do you think about all of us foreigners coming here? This is, this happened to me in Egypt. It happened in Indonesia. It's happened in Japan. I would be out somewhere and people would start talking to me, sometimes children. Mm. And I later found out it was an English class. And they were on a class trip and they purposely go to tourist attractions where they can talk to tourists in English. And so you'll find people in many places that are, that want to practice their English and they would like to talk with you about anything just to talk. And the other thing I would add, it isn't necessarily just a matter of meeting the people in the places you visit. You can learn a lot by meeting other travelers. And if you are staying in a place like a hostel, you're going to be meeting people from all over the world. And it's a place, and, and the great part about hostels is they usually have a communal area and you can stay up at night and drink and uh, shoot the breeze with people from all around the world who are traveling as well. I remember one night at a hostel in Tokyo, it was me 
and a rap group from Philadelphia, two guys. We were the Americans. I would otherwise never have anything in common with these guys, but the hostel had sold beer out of a vending machine, which is an awesome part about Japan. And so we're just drinking all night long. And then there's a bunch of Europeans and it was this, you know, how it goes. You're just, you know, talking about all the stuff in the world. And me and this rap group were basically explaining to Europeans how they really don't understand the United States. And a lot of people think they understand the United States because they watch TV and movies. But I've had a lot of experiences like that where you you just get to know other travelers from different parts of the world, um, which is another experience that you may not have. Even if you were to go to their country, you may not be able to make a connection like that. So I met a woman from Austria in Fiji, uh, we had a good time. I met an Australian woman in France that we spent several days with, and I ended up meeting her uh, a couple of years later when I went through Australia. So uh, those kind of uh, experiences are you know, things you can have as well. Do you prefer those sort of communal spaces for your accommodations because of that? Yes and no. I'm at a point where I'm not going to stay in a dorm room in a hostel. Like I'm, I'm, I'm too old for that sort of stuff. Uh, but if it's like a private room, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in not spending a lot of money on uh, hotels. You know, if I could spend $50 a night as opposed to $200 a night, that means I can stay there four more nights, which is really what I'd rather do. Plus, I can go out and, and, and eat and everything. And let's face it, when you're in a hotel room, you spend most of your time unconscious. So I don't really know what yeah. the the point is of spending a lot of money. I would rather I would rather fly first class and stay in a hostel than fly economy than stay in a four star hotel. If that makes yes. sense. Oh, it does. You are preaching to the choir on that. I accidentally got bumped up to first class on a recent trip, and I was like, "What is this madness? This is a real coffee? What? You know the premium snack." basket that they bring and the leg room like you can actually sleep uh if, if you have a decent uh, seat whereas in economy it's it's basically impossible you i can't even use a laptop in an economy seat anymore because the and i have a you know pretty small laptop it's just you don't have enough space between yourself and the back of the seat in front of you but that's that's a whole different thing Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If you're new here, you may be surprised to know that the beautiful backdrop of my show is not a virtual screen. It's a real place that you can really rent inside of the Pensacola Museum of History. The exhibit space is called Trader John's. It's an old bar in Pensacola whose owner was just as eclectic as this town. And it's perfect for birthdays, work events, award ceremonies, retirement parties, family reunions. So don't pick another boring venue space for your next event. Give the Pensacola Historic Trust your business and make your event super memorable. Learn more at historicpensacola.org. The weather is cooling down here in the southern U.S., and that means it's fire ant season. For those of you not from the south, fire ants are about as pleasant as they sound, and their bites puss up into an itchy red mess that takes forever to heal. I recommend Insect for pest management because I've been using their mosquito service since 2019, and I love that their work is guaranteed. If you're in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give Insect a call. It's E-N-S-E-C dot net. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. 
Um, yeah, no, and, that's a whole and, different thing, but it's a relevant thing. And I want to go back to what you ta- were talking about, about the accommodations. One of the things that people are concerned about with booking a accommodation that isn't you know, a hotel or an all-inclusive resort is the thing you mentioned earlier, the safety part. How would a beginner traveler, a beginner curious traveler, begin to sort out a place that's more communal, more uh, more opportunity for those cultural connections while also being safe? If you stay in a dorm room, that is a different level of safety than if you have your own room, which is another reason why I don't stay in dorm rooms. But if a lot of people are really looking to save money and travel on the cheap, then that's how you do it. And that's what a lot of people in their 20s will do. Uh, They'll stay in dorm rooms. And most of the problems I've heard in hostels come from people staying in dorm rooms. So you need to have like a lock and some sort of bag that you can secure. I think most of our listeners are 35 to 55. So we are past the dorm room communal (laughs) hostel Well, then I don't think it's a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So if they want to book like any sort of rental accommodation, like they call them hostels, but honestly, they're like super nice, you know, like the, uh, the surf lodges. That's what we always look for. Um, If you have this impression of a youth hostel, um, I have a, a really good friend who does a series. He's done a series of books on luxury hostels. There are really nice hostels out there now. You, you would never guess you'd walk in, you'd think it's a regular hotel. The only difference is the rooms are very Spartan. And sometimes you have a shared bathroom accommodations. So there's like a bathroom down the hall with, you know, multiple showers or something. But otherwise, uh, the communal spaces are very, very nice. They may have a restaurant and a bar on staff. I always stay at a place in London called the Generator Hostel, which is near King's Cross. And there's a whole bunch of different places in the King's Cross area. I like it there just because it's easy access to a lot of the train stations plus the Eurostar if you want to go into Europe. But there are many, many places like that that you can find that are affordable and very nice uh, that are not necessarily hotels. Do you ever feel inner conflict about blogging or podcasting about a place that's really cool in fear that people will overvisit it and end up ruining it? No. And let me let me give you an example. One of the greatest national parks in the world is Nahani National Park, and it's in Canada. It really isn't that hard to visit. The problem is there's no road that goes into the park. So you have to drive up to the Northwest Territories of Canada and then take a bush plane in. Nahani gets 800 visitors a year. And I have talked about this park on radio and television and everywhere. And I even mention, I am mentioning this knowing that nobody is actually going to ever go visit that place. Most Canadians have never heard of it. Most Americans certainly have never heard of it. It's one of the greatest parks in the world. Just to give you an example, in 1978, the very first World Heritage Sites were established by the World Heritage Committee. There were 12 on the list. And including on that 12 were Yellowstone National Park, the Galapagos Islands, and Nahani. That's kind of the level it's at. And when I went to Nahani, I got to meet with the the ranger, the supervisor for the area, and, you know, they're wondering, well, how can we we get the word out of this? And uh, so if even 100 people were to listen to me, it would make a dramatic change in the amount of visitors going to Nahani because so few people visit that park. Never has happened. Um, people are going to continue to visit the places they can visit because it's cheap and easy. Like I said at the start of the podcast, I get a lot of people that ask me for questions about where to go on vacation. Americans. And the place I always tell them that is very easy to get to, very affordable, and they will love it. And it's easy to get around. They speak English. I say, go to Fiji. 
They never thought to go to Fiji before. And you can get a direct flight from Los Angeles. You'll arrive in the morning in Nandi. You can get on a boat and the boat will go up this chain of islands. They do the route once a day. And there are 30 little resorts you can stay at. And I use the word resort loosely because they're run by the local villages. Uh, Last time I was there, it was $50 a night. And that was all inclusive. And so this is not a all inclusive resort, uh, but they they were feeding you stuff like cassava that they grew on the island, uh, fish, coconut, things like that. And it was a wonderful experience, very affordable. I don't think anybody's actually taken me up on my advice. They're just going to go back to someplace in the Caribbean or someplace in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. And because that's that's what they can do. So I have no problems talking about places that people can visit because I know no one is going to listen to it and take my advice. So I had a couple of questions for you about more nuanced styles of travel to get your take on if you feel like they are a cultural experience or just another version of tourism wrapped up in a different package. And the first one is volunteer trips slash mission trips. Is that culture or tourism? I've never done one. I have a friend who is involved in a lot of volunteerism things. You really have to check out the organization before you go because there are some scams out there and then there are people that do it properly. And so I know a lot of uh, church groups, for example, like the whole church or a bunch of kids, you know, there'll be 20 people that'll all go to some country to work on some project. Those kind of trips are usually not cultural trips. I would, I would just, yeah, do research on what it is and be skeptical going in, not just, oh, it says we're going to be doing something nice uh, because a lot of times these are not, you know, what is happening on the back end, like they may be running an orphanage for money. That's, you know, one of the things I've heard where the kids either are not orphans or taken from their parents so they can make money out of this operation or sometimes even worse. So just be very diligent about how you're doing this stuff. A lot of times you're better off just going to a place on your own and and helping out individually, finding someone than doing it through an organization. Is it culture or is it tourism? Paying to visit a Maasai tribe while visiting a country in Africa. I would have no problem with it. Because what are, what are, what is the alternative? You know, you're just going to, you know, first of all, they live in a a remote rural area. So you're just going to walk up there by yourself, you know, show up unannounced in their home. Like really doing it in that way is the only way I can think of properly doing it. Um, And yes, they're going to put on a show for tourists. It's a way for them to make money, which is not a bad thing. If, if demonstrating your culture to people, and, and it's not just, you know, the Maasai, You've, I've seen this all over the world where people will, if you're in Bali, they'll do a barong dance or things like that. Something which is normally done for a special festival, but they'll do it on a regular basis for tourists. Um, it's a way to bring money into their community. Uh, you know, that's, that's certainly not a bad thing, a way for them to show their culture to other people. And like I said, I don't really know what the alternative is. Like how you go about doing this if it's not in some sort of at least structured way. What about UNESCO World Heritage Sites? Oh, well, you asked the right guy about that. I've been to over 400 of them. By and large, there are some duds. There are like those super well-known ones like the Colosseum and the pyramids and stuff like that. But then there's tons of lesser known sites that are World Heritage Sites. And I would say 90% of the time visiting those have always been a pleasant surprise. 
because there are things that you normally didn't know about that you can really learn something. And there are some in the United States that people are completely unaware of. You know, there's like the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Independence Hall. People have heard of those. But there's Poverty Point, Louisiana, which is a, you know, a, a settlement dating back 10,000 years. There's Cahokia Mounds outside of St. Louis. Uh, I think the Serpent Mounds in Ohio just got put on the, on the World Heritage list. Uh, there are some really fantastic things that people are just, you just don't know about. So if you were to just go to World Heritage sites, I could think of a lot worse ways to travel than, than doing that. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of them. It's, it kind of tends to be the, uh, World Heritage sites tends to be the kind of Hall of Fame or the all star for national parks and historical sites. So that would be a great, um, you know, stepping stone for somebody that is curious and wants to connect with more meaningful aspects of other cultures while traveling. But maybe they're they're not quite at your level yet, but they are really wanting to get outside of the all inclusive resort kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're, the World Heritage Sites cover all sorts of things. If you go to Europe, you'll find some industrial uh, World Heritage Sites that are from the 18th or 19th century that dealt with the origins of steel making or copper mining or, you know, things like that. Uh, those are interesting in their own right. But then you'll go to some that maybe are uh, paleontology sites. I went to one uh, on the island of Java in Indonesia where they discovered Java Man. And you can visit the... Uh, museum that's that's there. So there's all sorts of different types of things. They could be, it could be a cathedral or a castle or a ruin, uh, but you're always going to discover something new. And I, I really believe for me, history and learning is really the reason I travel to to learn about places. And you, there's no better classroom in the world than the world. And that was kind of why I did it. And Kind of how I ended up transitioning to doing what I'm doing now with a podcast. It's not a travel podcast per se, but it's based on all the stuff I've learned through 13 years of traveling around the world. And where where can people find that and engage with that with your podcast and all of your work? Because you have these beautiful photographs as well. You can find both the podcast and the photography. Go to everything-everywhere.com. Uh, there you can see my many tens of thousands of photos taken while traveling around the world. And uh, the podcast, which is Everything Everywhere Daily, uh, which is a daily educational and history podcast. Any final words to my listeners out there, the curious, the curiositors, as I call them, who are wanting to connect more culturally? Any final thoughts that you want to leave with them or advice? At some point in your life, and I don't care if it's when you're in your 20s or when you're retired, you should travel for an extended period of time, which I define as at least three months straight. That is more than a vacation. Vacation, maybe you could go two weeks, your typical American. Um, but this is an extended trip, and you may go to multiple places. doesn't matter where you go. doesn't matter how you do it. But at some point in your life, you should take an extended trip. And that is, if you've never done something like that, it is something you should start planning for. Maybe this will happen when you retire. Maybe you take a sabbatical from work. Maybe you do it when you change jobs or when you change houses, whatever. But you should consider doing this at some point in your life because it will be one of the best things you ever do. And I can assure you that when you're on your last day and you look back at your life, it will be one of the things that you remember. Well said. Thank you, Gary. This was great. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did with an American polyglot on how he crossed borders of language and colorism in his travels. That is all the way back to episode 49. Stay tuned next week for a remastered episode with an atheist doctor who has researched near-death experiences for over 50 years.